Well, good morning. Uh, today we are going to continue our series in the book of Judges, and this time, our 12th time in the book together, we will look, as you see on the screen, at Judges 19, 20, and 21. Yes, that is a lot of verses, but it's all one story, so there's nothing I can do about that. Please turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. And kids, if your parents want you to have a coloring sheet, there are still a few left on the chair back by the sound table. Not in the lobby, but on the sound, near the sound table. You can go grab one of those. Now, I want to remind you that uh, most of the book of Judges describes a cycle of rest for Israel, idolatry, judgment, groaning, rescue, and then rest, idolatry, judgment, groaning, and rescue, and then on and on it goes. God repeatedly throughout the book judges his people for their sin, but each time he is uh, kind and gracious and merciful to them, and he sends them judges or saviors like Deborah, Gideon, or Jephthah to save his people out of the judgment they deserve. Samson is the last judge in the book, and that time around that cycle was the last time. So in chapters 17 through the end, 1721, there is no cycle, uh, there are no judges, and there are no oppressive enemies over God's people. Now, last time in Judges 17 and 18, uh, we saw the chaos of self-interested worship in Israel. Perhaps you remember this story. This is the story about how one man's decision to steal some silver from his mother culminated in the establishment of a, of a false worship center in the northern city of Dan, complete with images that were made from the silver he stole from his mom back in Ephraim. An amazing story. Without a king, Israel, uh, without a king in Israel, the people are all doing whatever they want, whatever is right in their own eyes. And the last time we looked at how that chaos had affected their worship, and this time in Judges 19 and 21, we'll see how that chaos shows up in their morality or their sense of right and wrong. Now, here at Richville Bible Church, most of our preaching, perhaps you're a guest here today or just haven't been here very long, most of our preaching is expository. That means that each week we look at the next section of verses, making our way through a book of the Bible. Right now I'm in Judges, Brian is in Jeremiah. And our goal each week is to, to understand the message of that section of verses as we unfold the message of that whole book and ultimately to understand the message of the whole Bible. And of course, we still preach topical sermons. I did one earlier this year. We'll preach on random psalms here and there, but, but the norm is for us to preach through books like this. And there are a lot of good reasons to do it this way. For example, as long as I'm in Judges, I always know what the next text for my, my preaching is going to be. I don't have to sit down and think, wow, I've got 66 books. What should I preach on next time? Okay? The decision is made for me, and I like that. The other reason, or another reason, for preaching like this through books is that it requires us to preach on texts that we may never choose to preach on otherwise. And Judges 19, 20, and 21 is one of those texts. I was thinking this last week, and I, I, I'm, I'm guessing there may be a good chance that you have never heard a sermon on Judges 19 through 21. In fact, it's also possible that this may be the only message you ever hear on Judges 19 through 21. Okay? Kids, do you have a favorite Bible story? 
You got a favorite Bible story? Okay. Adults, do you have a favorite story? No one's favorite story. It is Judges 19 through 21. Okay. Kids are not asking for this story before bedtime. Okay. There would be nightmares if they heard this story. So what's in this story? Okay. Put simply, there is lots and lots of egregious sin. In this story, there is homosexual lust. A woman is raped and killed. A body is divided into 12 parts and mailed across a nation. Thousands and thousands of men are killed. Women and children are put to death. And 600 young women are kidnapped and forced into marriage. These chapters will at times be very hard to read, especially if you have ever experienced any form of sexual abuse. And so I want to say that if, if that is you and if it would help you to talk to someone about your experience, please know that we would love to talk to you if you prefer that or we'd be happy to connect you with someone else or the right person to talk to you. We just we want to help. Also, I want to remind us before we begin reading that these chapters, though certainly not our favorite, are a part of God's holy word. And so today we are going to read them trusting that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so, brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us today. So let's start reading in Judges 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. So our story begins with a Levite man sojourning in the land of Ephraim with his concubine, a kind of of second-class wife. She was unfaithful to him and returns to her father in in Bethlehem. Now, the description of her unfaithfulness is, is not as clear as we would like it to be. It could be that she committed adultery. Or it could be just the unfaithfulness of her leaving, like walking away from her, from this Levite. Or some suggest that the language here actually describes her anger toward him. And then she leaves as a result, okay? And as we get to know him, uh, that option will seem much more likely. But we just, we just don't know. Now, after four months, the Levite follows after her to bring her back from Bethlehem. And he is welcomed by the woman's father, and he stays with them for three days. In fact, the woman's father is able to convince him to stay even longer when he had been planning to leave. And then on the fifth day, the Levite gets up to leave. Uh, He wants to get on the road and beat the traffic. And again, the the woman's father convinces him to stay longer. But on that fifth day, as, as the day kind of continues to move on and as evening draws near, her father cannot convince him to stay another day. And so, though it's Late in the day, the sun is starting to go down. Uh, The Levite, his concubine, his servant, and his donkeys head out for home. But the trip from where they were in Bethlehem back to where he wanted to go was too far to finish in one day. And so they need to spend the night along the way. The Levite's servant traveling with them suggests, hey, let's stop at the city of Jebus. But the Levite refuses. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. And his master, that's the Levite, said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, 
but we will pass on to Gibeah. So the Levite prefers the hotels in Gibeah over those in Jebus, because the people in Gibeah are Israelites. Okay? Jebus is a city of foreigners, and so, of course, he would never stay among foreigners. That would be terrible. And yet, as they, as they come into Gibeah that day, no one would take them in. And so the day grew later and later, night began to fall, and they found themselves sitting in the city square uh, with, with no one to help them, nowhere to stay. But then this, then this old man comes in from working in the fields all day, and he sees them, and he, he warns them. He says, don't, don't stay out here in the square all night. Okay? And, he, and he takes them into his house. Of course, a warning like that makes us all wonder what? Why can't people stay in the square all night? What's wrong with that? And it's not long before our curiosity is satisfied. Look at verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, this is the, old, the, the host old man and uh, the Levite. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them whatever seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. And so the man, the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Now, usually in a sermon from an Old Testament story, one of my favorite things to do is to retell the story in ways that allow us to kind of enter into it and experience it. But I don't want to do that with this part of the story. I don't want to use our imagination to put ourselves in the city square with these perverse men. This is God's word, and this is God's word for us today. He wants us to read this. It is good for us, but it takes very little effort for us to recognize what we need to from this scene, and that is that there is utter moral chaos amongst God's people. The men of the city are morally confused. They want to satisfy their homosexual lust with the Levite traveler. The old host is morally confused. He feels more obligated to protect his Levite guest than he does to protect his daughter or the Levite's concubine. And so the old host prefers giving up them to this mob rather than giving up his guest. And the Levite is morally confused, for he uses his concubine to protect himself at her expense when he turns her over to the mob. Verse 27. And her master, that's the Levite, rose up in the morning... Apparently, he was able to sleep all night. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so when the Levite gets home, he spreads the news about what happened in the most gruesome and provocative way possible, getting everyone's attention. Verse 30. And all who saw it said, such a thing has 
never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. This evil, as that last verse just pointed out, is unprecedented in Israel. But it has happened before. It's unprecedented in Israel, but it has happened before. Do you remember Brian's Old Testament reading earlier today? The story of how Abraham's nephew, Lot, who lived in the city of Sodom, warned two angels not to spend the night in the city square. And so they, they stayed with him. But then that night, the men of the city demand that Lot turn over these two travelers to them, to their homosexual lusts. And what does Lot do? He feels more of an obligation to protect his guests than he does his own daughters. And so he prefers giving them up to satisfy the mob. But thankfully, in that story, the angelic travelers protected all of them. So the similarity between what happened in Sodom and what we just read in Gibeah is, is amazing. Gibeah in Israel has become the new Sodom. This people of Israel that God rescued from Egypt using these great wonders, who, whom he took through the Red Sea, this people that had the tabernacle, they had the ark of God and they had the law of God, this nation looks just as bad as every other nation who has none of those advantages, none of those blessings. This nation has been completely Canaanized. And so how is Israel going to respond to this evil among them? In chapter 20, all of Israel assembles at a city called Mizpah. And the leaders there meet with the Levite to kind of figure out what exactly happened and then to decide what to do. Look at chapter 20, verse 4. Chapter 20, verse 4. And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. Now, is, is that how you remember the story? Okay. Does the Levite look better in his version of the story or in how it actually happened? Okay. In his version, he is a, a poor victim of what took place. In his version, the men of Gibeah deserve all the blame for what happened on that fateful night. And so Israel calls upon the people of Benjamin to turn over these wicked men of Gibeah. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And so the battle lines are drawn and the armies are called out. This battle is going to be Israel against Israel. Israel against one of its own tribes. So the book of Judges actually begins, the first few chapters, there's no cycle there either. The first few chapters are about God's people by tribe going to battle against enemy nations to, to kind of receive the inheritance through conquest that God has promised them. But throughout the cycle in Judges, the, the enemy nations have, have threatened Israel with oppression. Now, as that cycle has kind of gone away, as we to the end here, the threat to Israel is not an enemy nation anymore. The threat to Israel is no longer external. It is internal. The enemy for Israel in Judges 17 through 21 is now within. 
But thankfully, Israel wants to deal with this internal issue. They say, we want to purge evil from among us. And so in verse 18, before the battle, Israel goes to Bethel. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant is right now. And they ask the Lord, verse 18, they say, who shall go up for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, Judah shall go up first. But in the battle that first day, Israel loses to Benjamin. So then they go that night, they go back to Bethel, they weep over their losses, and they ask the Lord, verse 23, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against them. But in the battle that second day, Benjamin defeats Israel again. And then that night, Israel returns to Bethel. They are weeping over their losses. They are fasting. They're offering sacrifices. And they ask God, verse 28, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. Now, we're not told what military strategy Israel used on the first two days of the battle. but We are told what they used on the third day. And it's the exact same strategy that Joshua used many years earlier to defeat the city of Ai. In this strategy, this is the one where, where a smaller group of soldiers hides near the enemy city. Okay? And then the rest of their army comes and attacks the city from the front. Okay? After a few moments or a small, short time of fighting, that group at the front retreats as if they are beaten. And the people in the city are, are deceived into thinking that they are winning. And so they come out of the city and pursue after the retreating, losing soldiers. And when they do, the group that has been hiding near the city rise up and take over the city and attack the people of that city or the armies from behind. Okay? So that's the strategy Joshua used, and that's the strategy that Israel uses here against Benjamin, and it works. Look at chapter 20, verse 46. The losses for Benjamin were devastating. Verse 46, so all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon and remained at the rock of Rimmon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So now, what is left of Benjamin? Okay, what's left? We got one tribe that is down to what? 600 men. Okay, this is not 600 men and women and children. This is just 600 men. That's it. Okay. And that's a problem. Because without women, this tribe will disappear. Now, of course, the, the obvious solution would be for the rest of the tribes to let these 600 men marry their daughters, right? That's the obvious one. Let Israelites marry Israelites. Okay? But Israel can't do that. Do you know why? Okay? Look at chapter 21, verse 1. Why can't Israel give them their daughters? Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Okay? Well, that's news. Okay? We, we did not know about this oath that Israel made. Israel does not want to lose a tribe. They, they want to help Benjamin, but in the intensity of their battle preparation, their rah-rah before going out, they made this vow that ties their hands. Okay? They can't help Benjamin directly. Look at verse 2. 
The people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Verse 3. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Now, every other time that they have asked God a question in this story, God has responded right away. But look what happens after they ask that question. There is no response from the Lord. God says nothing. They cry out and say, why God? And he says nothing. Now, it's possible to read Israel's appeal or their question as like a genuine question about, you know, what should they do? But then God's silence is really hard to explain. Because as I said before, so far he's been very responsive to their questions. So why is God suddenly silent? It makes much better sense to read Israel's appeal here as a complaint against the way that God has dealt with Benjamin. The idea of vengeance against Benjamin sounded really good to the rest of Israel at first. They were ready to fight, but when they saw the severity of God's justice, it was just too extreme for them. And so their question is, why would God do something like this? And so it's no surprise that in response, God does not answer them. And it's also no surprise that that is what they're asking, that it's a complaint, that when God doesn't answer, Israel is more than content to just solve the problem themselves, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Okay, but remember, what's our problem? The problem is Benjamin is down to 600 men, and so they need 600 women to be wives for Benjamin. Now, as it turns out, the oath about not giving their daughters to Benjamin was not the only oath Israel made at Mizpah. There was a second one. They were really excited going into this battle. Look at verse 5. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? Okay, who didn't come to Mizpah? For they had taken a great oath. Here's the second one. Concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Okay, so, so in this oath, Israel committed to kill anyone who hadn't come up to Mizpah to fight with them against Benjamin. And of course, in their minds, they're thinking this, anyone who hasn't come up or didn't come up to Mizpah didn't make the other oath about not giving their daughters to Benjamin. So if Israel can find someone who hadn't come up to Mizpah, they could kill them to satisfy the second oath, and then they could take their daughters for Benjamin to get around the first oath. Does that make sense? Okay, it's as strange as it sounds. Okay? The problem was, was there anyone who hadn't come up to Mizpah? And the answer is yes. Okay? Jabesh Gilead had not come up. And so Israel goes to Jabesh Gilead, kills every man, woman, and child there, but saves every young woman who had never slept with a man. And this plan works perfectly, except for one huge detail. They could only find 400 such women. Okay, so as you do your quick math there, how many do they still need? 200. In this crazy story, Israel still needs 200 young women for Benjamin. Well, they think to themselves, our first oath, because of that, we can't give our daughters to Benjamin. But if we tell Benjamin to just take our daughters without asking, then technically we didn't give them our daughters. And that would kind of mean we didn't violate our oath. And again, that's as ridiculous as it sounds. Look at verse 19. 
So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Verse 20. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers, this is the fathers or brothers of these girls, when they come to complain to us, we will say to them, grant them graciously to us because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, meaning we couldn't get enough women when we killed off Jabesh Gilead. Neither did you give them to us, or else you would be now guilty. So, so he said, hey, it's, it's okay. We know you made the oath, but you didn't give them to us. We, we took them, and so it's all right. Verse 23. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they, that's the 600 Benjamites with their new wives, went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And so with this justice now done uh, for the Levite, Israel goes home, verse 24. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Now, what are we supposed to do with that story? Okay. If you've ever read this one in your devotions, which I hope you have, you just kind of want to get done with it and move on, right? Okay. So let's start by reminding ourselves that the Bible is about God. And so the Bible is God's self-revelation. And so the question we need to ask is, what is God revealing about himself in this story? Okay. Well, one of the things we should observe about God is that he hates what Israel has become. How do we know that? How do we know that God hates what Israel has become, that he disapproves of all that she is doing or disapproves of her condition? Okay, a couple things. Number one, at the very beginning, in the very end of this story, Israel's atrocities are characterized as what they did or, or what is right in their own eyes. Chapter 19, verse 1 says, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And then at the very end, chapter 21, verse 25 says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So you see, just like the story of Judges 17 and 18, the people of this story are doing whatever they want, whatever they think is right. And so there's no endorsement here from God. This is just what happened, and it's what Israel wanted to happen, what people in Israel wanted in their hearts. Second, we know God disapproves of this because his purpose for human government is to prevent such atrocities. The statement that everyone did what was right in his own eyes when there was no king in Israel implies that a king or, or human government would have prevented such an atrocity. And indeed, God has given human government for this very purpose. In Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Verse 4, He, or human government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Human government is God's gift to prevent atrocities like this. Now, does human government always do that? No. We all know very well that human government is not very good at what God has given it to do. 
But still, from the idea here that a king would have prevented this, we see that God does not approve of these atrocities. And third, we know that God hates what Israel has become because God himself fights against his people in this story. In the midst of Israel's strategy to defeat Benjamin, the text is clear that that elaborate military strategy they used is not what defeated them. In Judges 20, verse 35, it says this, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And so Israel didn't finally get their act together on the third day. God defeated Benjamin. God judged Benjamin for their sin. We, we hate the sin of this story, and God hates it too. And he did something about it. He brought judgment upon Benjamin for their sin. Now, does that mean that everyone in the story got what they deserved? Did the Levite get what his sin deserved? What about the old host who offered up his daughter and the concubine to the mob? We don't, we don't know what happened to them. What about the leaders of Israel who sanctioned the kidnapping and forced marriage of so many young virgin women? Where is God's judgment on all of these people? Okay. Well, these chapters are the end of the book of Judges, but they are not the end of the story of God's judgment. God does not always pour out all of his judgment immediately. Sometimes we want that. But if God always did that, if he always poured out all of his judgment immediately, none of us would be here. So please take comfort this morning that God God will not let any sin go unpunished forever. His just judgment is coming upon the wicked. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. The story of God's judgment is not over. No one in this story is getting away with anything. But in this story, even though the Bible is all about God and we want to always ask that question, the primary focus of this story seems to be more on telling us something more about Israel and also about us. The story of Judges 19 to 21 shows us that Israel's greatest problem, the thing that is the the greatest threat to them, is not oppressive nations out there. Israel's greatest problem is is not out there. Israel's greatest problem and our greatest problem is is right in here. This sordid story really happened. And it happened because there were humans who wanted these things to happen. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And we can, we can shake our heads in disgust, and we should hate what they did, but we should also remember that the same kind of heart, bent on fulfilling its own desires, is within each of us. Now, we may never give in to those desires to the same extent that we see in Judges 19 to 21, but the same heart is there. And this story shows us that the worst thing that can happen to anyone and to those around them is for that person to get to do everything they want. The worst thing that could happen to us and those around us is for there to be no restraint on our hearts. And so, thank God for His gracious restraints on your heart. Thank God for His gift of a conscience to each of us that can help us feel right and wrong. Thank God for a society that has historically encouraged this kind of restraint by punishing evil and promoting good. And kids, kids, thank God for parents who don't let you do everything you want to do. 
But this story also shows us that as good as those restraints are, none of those restraints will be enough to control the human heart. Think of all the restraints that Israel had. They had a rich history of God's mighty saving acts. They had the tabernacle. They had the Ark of the Covenant. And they had God's law. And despite all that, in Judges 19-21, Israel looks like every other nation. They have been completely canonized. External restraints are never going to be enough to control their heart. All our safeguards, all our disciplines, all our standards, all our resolutions, they will never be enough in the end to control our hearts. Kids, your parents have lots of good rules for you. You should obey them. But you should also know this, that those rules will never be enough to control your heart. Never. And we can't fix it. Look at the story of of what God did today. He judges Benjamin, but that didn't fix Israel's heart. How do we know that? Because right after that judgment, the judgment upon Benjamin for harboring these worthless men, Israel goes out and treats the women of their cities, of their society, essentially just the same, with the same disregard as the Levite and the old man. God didn't fix their hearts here, but he has promised to do so. In Ezekiel 36, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And all this God promised to do through his new covenant. Jeremiah 31 says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And so you see, when, when Jesus took the cup of the Passover meal and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, he was announcing the establishment of this new covenant through which he would provide forgiveness by his death and also new life through his resurrection, new hearts through his resurrection. So today, perhaps God has shown you the wickedness of your own heart more clearly and the danger of living by your heart, the danger of rejecting his authority and doing whatever is right in your own eyes, and you realize that you are more like Israel than you ever knew. Don't let sin deceive you. God is is just. No one gets away with anything. And so I hope you also see more clearly the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. God sent his son to die on the cross and then raised him from the dead, validating his sacrifice for sin. And so it's your choice. You can either hold on to your sin and face God's just judgment by yourself, or you can turn from your sin to God through Christ, trusting that he suffered the punishment your sin deserved, and God will forgive you. And he will let you share Christ's victory over sin and death, living with him forever. Now, it could also be this morning that you've already trusted Christ, you're following Him, but in your day-to-day life, you are recognizing times where, where you look to your heart to guide you. A situation happens and you just you do whatever seems right in your own eyes. Maybe you're faced with a major decision and you decide to do, based, you decide to do that, that decision based primarily on what makes you happiest, what's best for you. Or someone, someone hurts you, and your words are controlled only by your desire for revenge. Or kids, maybe your brother or sister messes up your room, and so you knock their recent art project off the dresser 
because that's what you want to do. Or maybe you're dating and you let things get too physical because that's what your heart wants. It is discouraging to see how much we are still like Israel in our hearts. But I want to encourage you today, brother or sister, when you recognize that similarity between you and Israel, don't forget the differences. Israel needed a king, and you have one, Jesus Christ. He has already dealt with your sin completely, and he is leading you with his word by his spirit. Israel needed a new heart. You have one. You have been born again. You are a new creation raised to life with your resurrected king. And so it is discouraging to see ourselves follow our hearts like Israel. But we are not like them anymore by God's grace. Jesus is saving us. And so let's keep repenting. Let's keep trusting in him. Today, in these days, there is a king over God's people. And so may we all, by his grace, do what is right in his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all of your word. We thank you for hard texts like this that are uncomfortable. Thank you that you are a God who always does what is right and good and just. Thank you for the reminder today of what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and how you are rescuing us. I pray for us if we are discouraged by uh, the likeness we see between ourselves and those who pursue hard after what their heart wants. Help us to repent of our sins and to rejoice in knowing that you are making us new. You have given us your spirit and by your grace we can for your glory Please you, through Jesus Christ. Thank you for his strength. Thank you for your spirit. And we pray today that you would bless the preaching of your word, encourage and challenge your people. In Christ's name, amen.